Right, thank you, Mike, for introducing that to us. Yeah. Uh, well, if you have your scriptures today, uh, you can turn to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to be in verses 15 to 21. You'll probably see that up there. Uh, as Chris mentioned, my name is Seth. Uh, I am a member here, a community group leader. Uh, they were crazy enough to let me up here a second week in a row. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it is my uh, pleasure and joy to, to get to bring the word again today. And we are going to be continuing our origin series on the book of Genesis and actually wrapping up our origin series today. And we are going to be looking at the life of Joseph, kind of part two here. So let's start in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you today uh, once again, uh, and we come before you in awe, in awe of who you are, in awe of how you work through all of history, Lord for our good and for your glory. And Lord, as we come to this text today in Genesis and, and wrap up our Genesis series, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be receptive to what your word would have for us. Lord, help us to have ears to hear, Lord, that, that we might respond to your text. Lord, for me personally, I pray that you would give me the words to speak. Spirit, that you would speak through me, Speak clearly and boldly, and that your word might be proclaimed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just read seven verses out of Genesis 50, but as you'll remember last week, the story of Joseph is so much bigger than that. It does take up nearly the last third of Genesis from chapter 37, where we were last week, all the way here to the very end of Genesis in chapter 50. And I'd like to do a little bit of a summary again, but it's not going to be quite the same as last week. So uh, if, you, if you were here last week, stick with me again. Uh, there are plenty of new parts to the summary. But for those of us who may not be familiar with the story of Joseph, I think this is going to help lay the groundwork. So let's jump in here and give that little bit of summary. So Joseph is a dreamer, and he's given dreams from God that... Uh, indicate that his whole family is going to bow down to him. Now, because of this, his brothers hate him, and they conspire against him to murder him. Now, cooler heads prevail, and they end up selling him into slavery, which is better, but not all that much better. And he is sold into slavery at the age of 17, where he's taken to Egypt, and he faithfully serves the captain of the guard there, Potiphar, as a slave. 
He's then falsely accused of rape and sent to Pharaoh's prison. Now, many years pass here in prison, and eventually he is brought before Pharaoh, who is also having dreams. And Joseph interprets these two dreams of the seven healthy cows and seven sick cows and seven good ears of corn followed by seven blighted ears of corn. And he reveals to Pharaoh that the two dreams are one in meaning, meaning that there's going to be seven years of good, plentiful harvest in the land, followed by seven years of famine. He also decides to give uh, Pharaoh a plan for how to tackle these seven good years to prepare for the seven bad. And Pharaoh sees the wisdom, the discernment, and the spirit of God in Joseph and decides to make him the second ruler in the land so that he can prepare. He's 30 years old now. He's given an Egyptian name, an Egyptian wife, and sets about to prepare for those seven plentiful years. If you did the math, he's already been 13 years as a slave and in prison. Now, when the famine finally comes, Jacob, who is Joseph's father, decides to send 10 of Joseph's brothers down to Egypt to buy grain. And lo and behold, they end up in front of Joseph and they bow down before him. But they don't recognize Joseph. And interestingly, Joseph recognizes them. So Joseph decides to test them. He treats them like strangers, accuses them of being spies, and demands to keep back one of the ten brothers while sending the rest back so that they might bring their claimed twelfth brother, Benjamin. He says it this way in chapter 42, verse 34. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. So the brothers go back to Jacob, their father, and when Jacob hears it, he is caused great distress. He says, Joseph is no more. He was sold into slavery and thought dead. And Simeon is no more. He was the one that had, was held captive. And now you would take Benjamin? Now Reuben, the oldest brother and the original defender of Joseph, steps up and offers two of his sons in order to bring back Benjamin as, as kind of a, uh, an assurance there. But Jacob isn't having any of this. However, the famine grows worse, the food runs out, and Jacob decides to eventually send his sons back down to Egypt to buy food. But this time, something different happens. Judah steps up, and Judah convinces Jacob to send Benjamin along with him and offers himself as a pledge of safety for Benjamin. So the brothers head back down to Egypt a second time and are brought before Joseph again, bowing down before him again. They still don't know who he is. And uh, they buy food from them, and uh, Jake, or sorry, Joseph decides to uh, test them again. So he has his silver cup placed in the, uh, the mouth of the grain sack of Benjamin and sends them on their way, and then he sends his steward after them to catch up to them and inspect their grain sacks. And lo and behold, the silver cup is found. It looks like they are stealing the cup, silver cup, and they are devastated. But again, we hear, here we see that Judah ch- takes charge and explains that their father will die of grief if Benjamin does not return. So Judah offers his own life in lieu of Benjamin so that Benjamin can return. He says it this way, chapter 44, verse 33. Now, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. After hearing Judah's willingness to give himself up in exchange for the life of Benjamin, their youngest brother, Joseph is undone and overwhelmed. 
He breaks down in tears here at 39 years old, some 22 years after he's first sold into slavery, and he reveals himself to his brothers. And one of the first things out of Joseph's mouth is this. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And so Joseph sends them back to their father Jacob with the news that Joseph is alive, and they take everything and everyone from Canaan, move down to Egypt, where they're reunited with Joseph. They are provided for for five more years of the famine, and they settle in the land of Egypt. Jacob, their father, goes on to pronounce some blessings over them at the end of his life before he passes away. And then we come to our text here today, where the brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to exact revenge, but Joseph declares that they meant it for evil, but that God meant it for good. And so Joseph lives out the rest of his days, and he too eventually passes away in Egypt, and we come to the end of Genesis. Thank you for taking a few minutes there to, to go through that story. That's really going to set us up for, for today. Now, last week when we went through the life of Joseph, we saw how God took horrible sins committed by others against Joseph and how he used them for his own good purposes to save his people. And we took those truths and we applied them to ourselves to see how God's purposes triumph over sins against us, how God's purposes triumph over our circumstances, and the fact that God will accomplish all of his good purposes. Now, I want to take a moment here to acknowledge those who, like Joseph, have had uh, a horrible sin perpetrated against you. Maybe it's something like sexual abuse or spousal abuse or the sin of partiality, racism, bigotry, or, or any other number of sins. And I want to say here at the start that those who sin against you are still responsible and liable for their sin against you. And, and that sin is either going to be paid on the cross of Christ or in eternal judgment. God will not leave sin unpunished. And while we know that God's purposes triumph over those who sins against us, we don't necessarily need to try and figure out what good purpose God is doing through that evil that's done to us. It's not so much about knowing the why Rather, it's about learning to rest and trust in the who. That's learning to rest and trust in our God, who we know is good. So while last week we looked at the sins of others against us, this week we're going to be taking a look at our passage and going to be looking at two ways in which God's purposes triumph over our own sins. Specifically, we're going to be looking at how God's purposes triumph over our sin against our brothers, which is that horizontal dimension, interpersonal dimension, and we're also going to be looking at how God's purposes triumph over our sins against God, that vertical dimension of life. And my hope for us today is that our takeaway will be that we, we more clearly see that God uses and redeems sinful and broken people to accomplish his purposes. Let me say that one more time. I hope we will see that God uses and redeems sinful and broken people to accomplish his purposes. So let's hop into that, that first way that we're looking at it, and that's our sin against others and how our sin cannot defeat the purpose of God. Now, one thing I love to do when I'm going through Scripture and I often find very helpful is to actually see how I identify with the antagonist. You know, I think our natural bent is to see how we identify with the hero in the story, but... 
If you've read much scripture at all, you'll know that we're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. Christ is. And so I often find that it's quite helpful to take a look at the antagonists of the story and ask myself, how am I like them? And so on our pass through the passage today, uh, I want us to take a look at this passage from the perspective of Joseph's brothers, the ones who are committing this heinous sin of selling him into slavery. So let's take a look at that sin. Here we see that Joseph's brothers are collectively committing this sin that's born out of hatred, arrogance, and envy. Joseph's brothers hate him for telling the truth about their actions and holding them to account. Way back in Genesis 37, we see Joseph is bringing a bad report about their brothers to their father Jacob, and they hate him for it. They can't stand that he's holding them to account. I know another thing that happens is we see how Joseph's brothers are envious that their father Jacob loved Joseph more than them. And in fact, he was given this, this special outward adornment, this coat that signifies that. So they're envious of their brother, jealous of him even. And the icing on the cake here, we see how Joseph's brothers were arrogantly offended that their brother would dare share a dream that God had given him where they are bowing down to him. And so all of these things come together and they conspire to murder him, which thankfully only resulted in him being sold into slavery for the 20 pieces of silver, a slave's price. But here we see this awful sin that's laid down, born out of hatred, arrogance, and envy. And so in their anger, Joseph's brothers commit this horrible act against him, and yet God, in his infinite wisdom and unmatched kindness, uses this very sin that they commit against Joseph as the vehicle for their own salvation 22 years later. See, Joseph is brought to a position where he can provide for them. The brothers are kept alive. The covenant promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 15, where God promises to Abraham that um, all nations will be blessed through him in Genesis 12 and that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in Genesis chapter 15. These covenant promises can continue because of that, all because God used their sin to bring their brother, brother to a position whereby he could save them from the famine. Now, there's actually another purpose of God that's going on here because while all, all of brothers, uh, Joseph's brothers, conspire together, one brother in particular is featured throughout the narrative of Genesis here. Sorry, the end of this narrative of Genesis. And that brother is Judah. And this is where things get really exciting, guys. I love seeing how God uses Judah here. Judah is the one who suggests and actually executes selling Joseph in the slavery. And then we have this bizarre story. If you've ever read 37 through the end, you come up on chapter 38. And it's this story of Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And it's kind of like, what is this story doing in the middle of this whole passage about Joseph? So we'll, we'll get to the details there in a minute. But this bizarre story is interjected in, in, in 38. And then later on in 44, we see that Judah is the one who promises to Jacob to offer his life for the assurance of Benjamin. And then later does so. He does offer his life in order to preserve Benjamin. And then finally, in chapter 49, the penultimate chapter of Genesis, we see Jacob is pronouncing blessings over each and every one of his sons before he dies. Now, many of these blessings sound a lot more like curses, but 
not Judah's. Judah's is the one who receives this blessing that is a blessing of the promise. And it's interesting that it goes to him and not Joseph or his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. You see, this is about God's promised line coming back from Genesis chapter 3.15 where God promises the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the line of the promise, the purpose of God to bring about ultimate rescue through Jesus Christ. This is the line of the offspring that, that stretches from Adam down to Abraham, and then from Abraham it goes to Isaac, not Ishmael. And then from Isaac it goes to Jacob, not Esau. And then from Jacob it goes to Judah, not Joseph. See, curiously, God seems to be choosing people for his own purposes. It's not the natural flow that uh, tradition would have this take. So you see, in God's purposes, he is taking this horribly flawed and sinful man, Judah, who sells his own brother into slavery, who in chapter 38, when trying to go and find a prostitute to uh, ease himself, he unknowingly sleeps with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and has a child with her. And he brings this sinful man, Judah, to this moment of redemption 22 years later, where Judah offers his very life as a substitute for his brother, Benjamin. God takes this flawed person and redeems him so that it's in the line of Judah where we see the line of promise continues. And we see these blessings that Jacob declares in chapter 49. 49 verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's cub. You heard of the phrase, the lion of Judah, referred to Jesus? This is where that comes from. In chapter 10, we see the promise continues, or the, the blessing continues. The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. What an amazing thing our God is doing, redeeming this man Judah and using him for the line of the promise. Now, maybe you're here today and you're a bit like Judah. You've sinned against someone and done wrong to them. And maybe that sin has caused a hurt that can heal. Or maybe that sin has altered the very course of life for that brother and sister. Maybe they'll never be the same, and there's nothing you can fully do in this life to restore them to the wholeness they had before your sin against them. Now, this is a terribly difficult place to be. Having that realization that our actions can have grave and irreparable consequences on others. But my hope for you today is that you wouldn't stay there in condemnation. And I want to take a moment to outline three steps that I, I think we can and should take when we sin against others. The first step I think we should take is to own our sin and realize the consequences. That is to realize that you are responsible and liable for your own sin against others and that sin must be paid for from an eternal perspective. And it's either going to be paid for on the cross of Christ in eternal judgment or, sorry, in eternal judgment. It's either going to be paid for on the cross of Christ or in eternal judgment. God is not going to leave sin unpunished. And we can root this a bit in our text today, I think, in, in chapter 15, where 
Joseph's brothers see that their father's dead, and, and there, there's a bit of fear that there's no longer protection here, but I think they also realize how great their sin was against Joseph because they say it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. See, they're, they're owning their sin in a sense. The next step I think we can take is to repent before God. That is throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, repenting from our sins, turning away from our sins, and turning toward God so that he can work in us. Now, I rooted this in verses 16 and 17, and I think it goes a little bit with our next point as well, but we see them saying, so they sent a message to Joseph, your father gave this command before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, this is them talking, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. So they, they're making this connection with God. They're, they're asking him, but there is a a sense of repentance that is going on there, and I think that's essential for us. Point three, repent and ask forgiveness from the ones you hurt. You know, a heart that is transformed is a heart of contrition, a heart that seeks to restore. And so this isn't an apology that expects no earthly consequences. This is realizing and turning to God and asking him for forgiveness of sin, getting that that sense of eternal forgiveness, but realizing that doesn't absolve us of our earthly consequences and the need for restitution here on earth. And I think we can see this down in verse 18 where the brothers fall down before uh, Joseph and say, behold, we are your servants. They're seeking to restore what they have broken. They're seeking to serve him in any way that they can. And so for us today, I think a practical way of looking at that, if you stole something and your heart is transformed, you're going to seek to pay that back, to make that whole, to make that right and restored. If it's something where it's not as easy as just paying someone back, maybe it's like a violent crime, in that case, it's, it's facing the just judgment that God doles out through the state, through the government. Now, I know our government isn't perfect and no government is, but I think the book of Romans points to the fact that that is how God has justly laid out for punishments to happen like that. So we need to seek to face those that we've harmed, knowing that we justly deserve earthly punishment and consequences. But in so doing, we're repenting. We're asking forgiveness. We're approaching them with a contrite heart to seek to restore, to seek to make things right. 1 John 1.9 puts it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we, we may have earthly consequences to face. And we need to own up to them. But there is an eternal freedom in Jesus Christ that allows us to face those things. And to face them even with a sense of joy and a sense of peace that passes all understanding because our perspective has been transformed by the living God. Now when God takes sinners such as you and me and redeems them for his good purposes, he is triumphing, triumphing over that sin that we meant for evil against others. Ephesians 1, 7 puts it this way. In him, 
we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. My prayer for you here today is to grab a hold of these gospel promises. Unbeliever, if you're, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, this forgiveness is available. We're going to talk about it more, but this forgiveness is something that you can grab a hold of. It, it's, it's, it's available and it's free. Believer, if you're here today, it's freshly available to you. Not that we need to continually uh, repent as if we're earning our salvation, but rather to be filled and freshly refilled with the Spirit as grace falls on us. Let that Spirit of grace fall on you and know that God redeems sinful and broken people for his good purposes. Now let's move on to the next point. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's move on to the next point where we look and see how our sin against God can't defeat God's purposes. And I hope you have a picture of how Joseph and, more fittingly, Judah fit the narrative of Genesis and the Pentateuch. We see here God is laying the foundations for how he is preserving a people for himself, how he is bringing them into a, 400, uh, a foreign land for 400 years, how he's preserving the line of the promise through Judah, which leads to this greater purpose of salvation and redemption through Jesus Christ. And it's that greater purpose that I want to dwell on here for a moment because we always want to see how our passages connect to Christ. But to see this connection most clearly, I think we need to take a step back to the beginning of Genesis. You see, in the beginning, God creates the earth and the animals and mankind, and it's all very good. Sin isn't present. Adam and Eve have a right relationship with God. Yet, in Genesis 3, sin is introduced to the world. And when sin enters the world, it's through the sin of Adam and Eve. And their sin is ultimately a sin against God. In fact, I think all sins are ultimately sins against God, our own included. And so theirs is the genesis of sin, if you will. Sin enters the world, and it breaks the world. Sin can never be taken back from then on, and, and everyone will sin and fall short. And it seems like God's purposes for mankind living together with our creator is broken at this point. How is this going to be fixed? What can God do to unbreak what is broken and bring his creation in line with his ultimate purpose? And that's God's grander purpose that we see here in Scripture. Isaiah 46.10 says, we said it last week, we'll say it again this week, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. God's sovereign. He is going to accomplish his good purposes. It's, in, it's inevitable. And we see that purpose and its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ through that line that's tracing its way all the way through Scripture. Through Jesus' perfect life, his sacrifice on the cross, that he can take our sin and we might receive his righteousness. And in so doing, bring us back to that right relationship with God where we can worship him in the new heavens and new earth. And not only live in his presence, but love him and enjoy him forever. So God's purposes aren't merely limited to what we're seeing here in Genesis, but rather it's, it's tracing this line of the promise and pointing forward through Genesis, through our story of Joseph, 
through the rest of the Pentateuch all the way to Jesus Christ. And from him, it points forward all the way to the second coming of Christ that we have to look forward to. Christian, if, if you're here today and you feel that, that guilt and shame of, of sin and failure as if you failed God, if you're saying things like, oh no, I've, I've messed up again, I've fallen short again, how, how could I be forgiven? Not after what I've done. Why would God use and redeem a failure like me? Don't listen to that lie from the enemy. I want to relate a bit of a story from my own life of a struggle with sin. It began around the age of 12 where I found a magazine. And yes, it was that kind of magazine, pornographic. And there was a temptation there that I gave into. I knew it was wrong. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I was interested. And it set me off on a 13-year journey of a struggle with lust and pornography, moving from the physical medium to the digital medium with the explosion of the Internet. And it was hard, but I don't want to minimize it, you guys, because it's so easy in the midst of that to sweep that under the rug, to say, oh, that's only something that hurts me. Oh, it's not that big of a deal, right? Everyone does it. But those are lies. You know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, makes this clear. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Through those 13 years of struggle, I had times of victory and I had times of stumbling. And there were times after I had fallen short where I would be on my knees or at times literally on my face on the ground, crying out to God, asking for him to change my heart, asking for him to heal me, to to fix this sin, not just the sin of lust, the sin of a fornication of adultery in my heart that was happening. And praise be to God, he did. About 11 years ago at the age of 25, I was, I was set free from that. And it's quite a story, but long story short, through accountability, through hard work, but believe me, it's not the work that got me there. Through God's faithfulness and, and a grace that I just can't explain, those desires diminished. And, and I tell that story to relate how God has used it in the intervening years since. See, I've had opportunities to walk through the same struggles with many men, praying for them, helping hold them accountable, walking with them through this. And and God has taken that sin, which I meant for evil, I knew it was wrong, and he's redeemed it and used it for good in his kingdom and the lives of others. Now, maybe for some of us, it, that it's not that sin of lust. Maybe it's anger. You know, Matthew, again, chapter 5, talks about anger and says, You've heard it said to people long ago that you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Brothers and sisters, in our sin, apart from Christ, we're all liars, 
or murderers, fornicators. Maybe we're adulterers, slanderers, thieves, idolaters, drunkards, blasphemers. There's so many more things. But the point that I'm driving at here is let's not hide from acknowledging the weight of our sin. Our sins against God are a serious and fearful thing that apart from God will bring judgment. So let's not minimize the weight and impact of our sin. Because when you understand how great it is, the weight of sin that we bear apart from Christ, you begin to comprehend how great is the weight of glory that Christ took those sins on himself. Let me say that one more time so you can catch it. When you understand how great is the weight of sin that we bear apart from Christ, you begin to comprehend how great is the weight of glory that Christ took those sins on himself, bearing our sin and shame that he might redeem you, that he might redeem a people for himself. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, I'd like you to consider this an open invitation. Our God can take your sin, he can take your brokenness, and he can redeem it and give you righteousness so that you can live in that right relationship and enjoy him forever. But you must come to Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, and faith alone. So I'd like you to invite you to to come forward. I think our ministry team will be up here at the end. If they're not, come find me. (laughs) But I'd like you to come find someone, talk to them so that that we can pray with you. (laughs) And you can begin that journey of faith. Believers, if you're here today, I hope that you take heart. Let this passage encourage you that our God is a God of forgiveness and redemption. He brought Joseph to this place of forgiving his brothers. What's more, he took a sinner named Judah who had committed some of the most atrocious sins imaginable. And he redeemed Judah and used him in the very line of the promise that would lead to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Why would such sinful people like Judah and Abraham and so many more be used in the royal line leading to Jesus? It's because God's purposes aren't to show how great and pure the lineage of Christ is. No, God's purposes are to show how great of a God we have that uses and redeems broken and sinful people to accomplish his purposes. He did that for Judah. He's done that for me, and he can do that for you too. He's a God who can take your sin and shame and redeem it for his glory. So go, search out God's promises in Scripture. Memorize them. Hide them in your heart. Let them take root in you so that you can rest in knowing God's purposes for you. So that you can rest in knowing that God will accomplish all of his purposes and that your sins against God cannot defeat those purposes. Brothers and sisters, we know that God's purposes can triumph and will triumph over your sins against others. And God's purposes will triumph over your sins against him. Because ultimately, I hope you've seen today how great it is that he's done through Judah. 
that God uses and redeems sinful and broken people to accomplish his purposes. And God will accomplish all of his good purpose. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. A God who seeks to redeem, not a God who seeks to show how pure his lineage is, but a God who seeks to show how great he is in using the lowly and broken to shame the wise things of this world. Lord, I pray that that would be our heart today, Lord, that we would see how you might use us. And Lord, I pray that you would, Spirit, that you would call us out in our sin, Lord, that we might seek you, that we might repent and fall upon your mercy and grace, and that we might seek to restore and redeem and make right those sins. Lord, not because we need to, but because you have transformed our hearts. Lord, transform hearts here today. We ask in Jesus' name.